lo and behold, I have the name Scripture on Creation for that too. And uh, as an organization, you know, we can't do all the little back and forth. But you could still like me, and that way you uh, you would get an occasional. I don't inundate people with stuff, but an occasional uh, link to the radio program on the website and a few things, few pictures. So, if you would be interested in following um, my ministry in any way and check out some of these things, okay? Tonight we're going to talk about evolution, creation, and intelligent design. Like I mentioned this morning, if you are here, this isn't going to be a real biblically based presentation. Um, we're going to get to a few things uh, from the Bible when we actually get to creation. But uh, this is going to be more uh, a presentation on what we would call apologetics. And more importantly, for an audience like this, I know that I'm, quote unquote, you know, preaching to the choir in the sense that I'm not going to have to convince you all kinds of things about the errors and the problems with the theory of evolution. Uh, intelligent design is something that is a good thing, in my opinion, but it by no means is actually creation, despite what the evolutionists scream about. And we'll get to why they hate intelligent design as much as they do creation in just a little bit. But there is a lot of confusion. Well, what's the difference? between evolution and uh, intelligent design or intelligent design and creation and so forth. So I'm going to try to give you some information that will give you some tools that if you were discussing some of these things with people, um, you could maybe not try to change their mind about something, but at least you would know what these different positions are actually uh, saying about origins. And that's what we're going to be discussing tonight. Origins, not so much how once an organism is alive, it could change into other organisms. That's a different brand of, or different part of evolution, I guess we might say. But we're going to consider evolution, creation, and intelligent design. Talk about what the difference is. To do that, this is always so important. I'm sure any of you have ever gotten in a discussion with somebody arguing about evolution or creation or something. You get into the discussion, and it doesn't take very long, and you start realizing that the words you're using... Are not, it's the same word, but it's not what they mean. It's not what they're thinking. So definitions are really important. I'm not trying to impose my definition on you, but I'm telling you what I'm meaning when I say some of these different words. And I think they're pretty good definitions, so you could use them if you want. What is evolution? The most basic uh, meaning of evolution is change over time. Well, we're all evolving, right? I mean, my hair is graying. My uh, stomach is enlarging, um, you know, we're all changing over time. But that's not the evolution that we're talking about. We are talking about a biological process, a gradual one in which things change into different and usually the idea is more complex or ordered forms or systems. So we're talking about going from simpler to more complex gradually over time. That's evolution generally uh, talked about in the case of biological evolution, for example. There are different types of biological evolution, though. In other words, you can say evolution, and it's important to know, well, what, what kind of evolution are you talking about? Is it microevolution of organisms? That is, the adaptation of species to fit better in the environment that they're in? That we would call adaptation. I like to refer to that, frankly, as adaptation of the kinds. 
So microevolution or speciation is a biological term is something that we can observe. I mean, it happens. A, a creationist that that um, is very knowledgeable at all is going to say, well, of course there's microevolution. I mean, it stares us in the face all the time. But that is very different from macroevolution. What is macroevolution? The generation of major biochemical, and that's where all changes in living things start, at the chemistry level. The generation of major biochemical and anatomical, that is body parts, <laughs> different from an organism's ancestral population. The, the, the most dramatic example of that would be microbes, you know, single-celled organisms to men. That takes some pretty macro changes, doesn't it? That's macroevolution. So usually people, when they're throwing the term evolution around, that, that's what they've got in mind. They're thinking about fish turning into lizards and so forth. But um, it's important to understand the difference between those two. When uh, 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 a creationist might say, well, I believe in evolution, and the, the person goes, what do you mean? Well, then you explain, well, you might call it microevolution. I believe in that, but I don't believe in macroevolution. So how about Creation. What is creation? Well, simply put, the generation of organisms by supernatural means. That's creating things out of uh, um, nothing or by means that don't normally happen in nature. But biblical creation, which we'll get to as well, is a little different than just generation of organisms by supernatural means. Biblical creation is the generation of life by the supernatural creative power of the God revealed in the Bible, biblical creation. So that brings into the discussion what Genesis chapter 1 and 2 and other portions of God's word says. So even that, biblical creation is different from just the term creation. Intelligent design. This is the one that, that uh, can be most confusing for people that uh, you know, adhere basically to biblical creation. What in the world is intelligent design? It's the generation of the material universe by an intentional, intelligent designer. All right? There's a designer behind this universe. There's a couple, well, there's more than, more than two, but there's a couple major ways of identifying intelligent design uh, proponents. One would, we could put into this category of mystical intelligent design. You've all seen the Star Wars movies. What is the force? That is a mystical, intelligent designer. I mean, that is a classic example of our culture almost buying into. They say it's science fiction, but you know what? Lots and lots and lots of people actually buy into that. There's a force in the universe, and it produces life. Mystical, intelligent design is a design of a vastly superior intelligence in the universe, and it is not necessarily personal at all. It's just a force. But it's an intelligence and it's a, it's a design force. Then there's divine intelligent design. The design of a divine or supernatural being generally identified as God, not always, outside the material universe. This intelligence, this God, this designer is, is not a part of the universe like the force. It's, it's outside. And usually it's called God, but that doesn't by any means mean it's the God of the Bible. And there are some wacky intelligent designer people out there. Intelligent design does not equal creation. Creation obviously would include intelligent design because it took an intelligent God to create, as we understand. So, 
What are some of the assumptions of these ideas? Evolution has this very important assumption. The universe is self-existent and exists only, only of matter and energy, period. That's all the universe is composed of. A common variation of that evolution that I just put up there is theistic evolution. Notice the word evolution is in there. God, I put that in quotes, may be the original cause of the universe. In other words, there was, was this God who got it all started. Like, he did the Big Bang, but then he left. God may be the original cause of the universe. However, evolution is how everything in the universe came into existence after that. Everything that's here is because of evolution. Everything. The stars and life on planets, all of that. And this thought, you know, we call it theistic evolution, but it's really similar to deism, which is an old idea. You know what deism is? The idea that God, and again, I put that in quotes, it's not the God of the Bible by any means, but God or the supernatural is not involved in the process of going from once you've got the uh, universe in place to uh, the complexity of the solar system and the planet and living things. Deism. God did it, but then he just like wound up a clock and left. We actually looked at a passage this morning in Psalm 104 that refutes that idea. He is involved in his creation. Now, here's a very interesting uh, assumption in intelligent design. Notice there's a tiny little difference between it and evolution. The universe exists of matter and energy and one other thing, information. That is a crucial distinction. And that's all. At the most fundamental level, that's the only difference between intelligent design and evolution. They propose this new, uh, really, explanation for, for origins proposes that the universe is made up of three fundamental things. Matter, energy, and information. Intelligence. That's part of the definition, right? Intelligent design. What is intelligence? That information requires an intelligent source, a designer. Uh, That's just sort of a given, but that's an assumption. If you've got information, it requires intelligence. Information doesn't come out of nothing or by chance. How about the designer? The identity of the designer is not generally a part of intelligent design theory. Now, in in other words, intelligent design is proposing there has to be a designer. This is where the information came from. But it doesn't take the next step and start proposing who the designer is. Of course, determining the identity of the designer is logically the next question you ask. And this is why the theory of evolution, the evolutionists, I should say, just can't stand intelligent design. And they just say, oh, it's just creation, uh, a way that the Christians are trying to get uh, creation into the schools. They're saying it isn't um, creation. Yes, it is. Well, no, it isn't. But what they don't like, and so what they're trying to avoid is, well, everybody then asks, okay, if there is a designer, who is it? Well, that leads you to what? God, it might even lead you uh, to the Bible, you know? So they just, they lump them together and they extremely resist intelligent design. I am personally very happy that more intelligent design is getting into school systems. It's being um, presented as an option for origins, even though... Creation is not. At least that's a step closer. But don't confuse intelligent design with creation. 
How about creation? What assumptions do the, does a creation proposal have? Well, the creator is self-existent. Supernatural and transcendent over the material universe he made. Outside of the material universe that he made, not a part of it. A variation of that is more specific. Biblical, biblical creation. That creator is the author of the Bible which includes the information about creation in Genesis. Of course, there's a whole lot in the Bible besides just creation. In fact, there's not that much in there about creation. I wish there was a lot more. But at least that creator uh, is, is revealed in the account of creation as well as elsewhere in the Bible. Now, there are, to uh, have full disclosure, <laughs> there are interpretations of the meaning of the creation account that vary between, I would say, biblical creationists. Okay, we're not going to get into this, and I'm not going to mince words. Well, they're not really a biblical creationist. They don't believe what the Bible says. Well, in their mind, they do believe what the Bible says. They just think it's saying something a little different than you may think it's saying. But they are attempting to uh, look at the Bible, and they say this is, this is what the Bible says about creation. So there are different brands of even what we might say biblical creation. I know that you um, probably know from things that I've shared that I believe in a literal interpretation. So a lot of times that's identified as a young earth creationist. I don't believe in the billions of years crammed into Genesis 1. But those people are biblical creationists as well. We probably have some in the room. That's fine. We're not going to discuss that kind of thing right now. I'm not going to have a young earth, old earth, back and forth written. So here they are, explanations for the origin of life, evolution, creation, and intelligent design. Just what would be required? You've got these origins of life. What, w- what would be required for you to start life, for life to begin? <clears throat> well, you need DNA. As we look around us, all living things have DNA. It's a chemical. It's a chemical, but it carries an amazing amount of information in it. If you have the right perspective, you can look at it and you can just read it. Machines in your cells read it, just like uh, an encyclopedia. So you've got, got to have DNA. Then you have to have my favorite molecule, RNA. It's similar to DNA, but it's a little different. And uh, it can take... You've all seen pictures of the DNA helix, right? It's a very structured double helix. It's a spiral. Well, RNA's got spirals involved with it because it has that base pairing and turns on an axis. But it also has places where it's flexible. And so it takes all kinds of three-dimensional shapes, not just the spiral. And RNA is actually the molecule that I studied for my Ph.D. work. I studied the structure and function of a very small part of that molecule that I just showed you. Then there are proteins, the workhorses. We might say the the most important biomolecules in the sense that that you're made up of proteins mostly. Uh, They do all the work. The RNA and DNA work together to produce the proteins. It's interesting, though, you can't make RNA or DNA without proteins. You can't get proteins without RNA and DNA. So, hmm, you sort of have to have it all at once. And that's a real dilemma for then how could this all just sort of happen? You've got to have it all at once. This particular picture is sort of interesting. It's one of the simplest enzymes in the metabolic pathway of glucose. Notice how it's sort of open and there's a purple thing there. That's a glucose molecule. And if that glucose molecule floats right down in the right spot in that crevice there, the molecule clamps down, does one little biochemical reaction, lets it go, and then it floats off, the glucose floats off to be changed 
ten more times by a whole raft of machines like this just to turn that six glucose molecule, that, that six carbon molecule of glucose into three, two glucose molecules. I'm having problems with my carbon and glucose. Three two carbon molecules, and then it goes on to another system, and, and the complexity of this most simple metabolic pathway to get energy is astounding. Every, every living organism has it. Proteins uh, and what they do are determined by their three-dimensional shape. Their three-dimensional shape is determined by the instructions that are in that DNA molecule to put all the amino acids together just right. So that protein can put a phosphate on a glucose molecule and then send it on its way to the next step in the process. Then we got lipids. These are really cool. They're like fat molecules, but they got some really fancy other parts to them, and they form the membranes. You know, your membrane of a cell is crucial for life. The membrane keeps the bad stuff out and the good stuff in and controls what goes back and forth. Um, it's not just a soap bubble. It looks like a soap bubble almost, but it's much more complex than that. It has molecules in that membrane that are very, very specific to control what goes in on inside the cell. All those molecules and many other types, proteins, RNA, lipids, DNA, there's also carbohydrates, we didn't talk about all of them, are all then perfectly arranged in order to work together to make life possible. So here's a simple picture of a, of a euglena. I think that's what that might be. It's got a propeller. It's got little, little feelers on the outside so that it knows where to go. Oh, there's sugar over here. And it sort of goes over there. Now, it's not thinking that, but biochemically, the, the flagella works because it senses, hey, there's more sugar on this side than that side. And so it just sort of, and it moves over there. It's incredible, the things that go on in there. And, of course, there's DNA so that it can replicate itself and so forth. All those different molecules are working together to make that little living organism. This is a little more complex. This is a eukaryotic cell. In other words, it's got a nucleus, not just a naked piece of DNA. Actually, it's not naked at all. But we'll, it's uh, very complex, even in just the form of free DNA. And it's got packaging systems and factories that make the proteins. Uh, it's got special little arrangements so that the cell will divide once the DNA du duplicates itself and so forth. Fantastic. All those molecules have to work together to make those complex uh, arrangements for a living cell. Now, I showed you those pictures, and because of powerful telescopes and biochemical research, we get an idea of what those little structures look like. Imagine, though, if the first time we'd ever gotten a powerful enough telescope to get down in there and actually see what was inside of a cell. This is what we found. Transistors and wires and resistors and, and uh, little electrical grids. Now, do you think that anybody would have looked at that and said, wow, uh, this, this couldn't happen by chance. This is an electrical uh, you know, transistor. Do you think they would have said that that happened by chance? No. But the fact of the matter is, you guys, this thing is so simple compared to a cell. And yet people can look inside the cell and see what's going on there and say, oh, how interesting that this thing sort of developed itself and evolved from a puddle of simple uh, carbon dioxide and ammonia and water molecules. So. One of these explanations for the origin of life is evolution. This is what evolution has got to come up with, a way for those molecules to be produced and organize themselves and then eventually produce a living cell. So 
essentially evolution comes in three stages as they describe it. There's the chemical evolution part and then that self-organization part. If you've got DNA and RNA and proteins, then they got to they got to get together and start working together. <clears throat> and then biological evolution, that is, you've got an organism, and then that organism, a simple cell, goes on into much more complex organisms. So we're not going to deal with organismal or biological evolution tonight from the perspective of how once you've got life, then it evolves into all these different kinds of life. So you've probably all seen these what are called phylogenetic trees. You start with a, a real simple life form, and then it just keeps going over time, branching out into um, funguses and plants and animals and all the rest. We're not, we are going to talk about what's below the first little cell there. We're going to talk about chemical evolution. <clears throat> One of the first principles learned in biology is that living organisms do not pop into existence out of nothing or spontaneously generate themselves is the term. They always come from another living organism. Anybody know who basically did the scientific experiment to demonstrate the fact that spontaneous generation was not true? Anybody know? He's responsible probably for every one of us being alive. Louis Pasteur, a believer, who when he saw evolution theory coming, instantly saw the problem with Darwin's theory of evolution without even getting into natural selection. He said, yeah, but this only works with something alive. How do you get something alive in the first place? And that was the basis for his experiments with uh, the flies and showing that flies don't just spontaneously develop out of rotten meat. Uh, fly got in there and laid an egg and it came from another fly. The reason I say we're all probably owe our lives to Louis Pasteur is because he developed antibiotics. I mean, he, he was the one who showed that you can't, that germ, germs and things like that. But for evolution to be true, some kind of spontaneous generation has, have, has to have occurred. This is something that uh, Francis Crick, one of the co-discoverers uh, of the structure of DNA, He's an evolutionist, a Nobel Prize winner, top kind of prize you can win in the field of science. He won his Nobel Prize in 1962, and he stated this, an honest man armed with all the knowledge available to us now, and that's back in 1962. Well, no, way. this is 1982, so he, this was after he won the Nobel. Armed with all the knowledge available to us now could only state that in some sense the origin of life appears at the moment to be almost... You can't quite say a miracle. Almost a miracle. So many are the conditions which would have had to have been satisfied to get it going. Almost a miracle. Another Nobel Prize winner, George Wald, stated this. When it comes to the origin of life, there are only two possibilities. Creation or spontaneous generation. There's no third way. Spontaneous generation was disproved. He's referring to what Louis Pasteur showed. But that leads us to only one other conclusion, that of supernatural creation. We cannot accept that on philosophical grounds. Therefore, we choose to believe the impossible, that life arose spontaneously by chance. Well, that's a great admission. I mean, at least he's willing to say it. And he made this statement in 1954. So you go, oh, wait, that's a long time. We've discovered a lot. Yeah, you know what? The more we discover, the more this becomes uh, applicable to everybody who believes in spontaneous generation. But 
Here's a little clue as to why the age debate is so important. Why the theory of evolution insists upon these billions of years and so forth. Notice later on he points out, though, it's impossible, right? But wait a minute. We've got something to rescue us. Time is the hero of the plot. What we regard as impossible on the basis of human experience is meaningless here. Given so much time, the impossible becomes possible. This is something that you as a believer need to understand. The evolutionist has simply taken God out and put time and chance in. Time and chance is God. Plays the role of God in their worldview. So the impossible can happen because enough time and it'll happen. Anybody who knows anything about thermodynamics knows that that's bizarre. That's absurd. Time works against evolution. It really does. But you would never hear that in a discussion amongst uh, evolutionists. They act as though time is the hero. <laughs> so, evolution, for it to be true, some kind of spontaneous generation has to have occurred. And several evolutionary hypotheses have claimed to provide reasonable explanations for how life may have arisen from non-life. In other words, for life to spontaneously generate on Earth. And what they all point to is the origin of something we might call pre-life, prebiotic things that aren't living like we understand life today, but little pre-life things. These all start with pre-life organisms. Although organism is a word for something that's alive. So pre-life things. I don't know what else to use. Well, that requires chemical evolution. What would chemical evolution have to accomplish? Well, you're going to start with very simple organic and inorganic chemicals. The building block compounds like amino acids. You've heard of amino acids. Your proteins are made of amino acids linked into a big long chain. Or nucleotides. You heard of nucleotides? Those are the little building blocks that make the DNA or the RNA and linked into a big long chain. Those things, amino acids and nucleotides, would have had to have formed larger molecules than like proteins and DNA uh, to get these large biomolecules that would somehow work together. These biomolecules, however, in a puddle somewhere, in a volcanic earth, would have to be consistently produced. I mean, it's not like just, well, here's a few amino acids. Well, now we'll get life. You've got to be generating them constantly, and they've got to be just right in their structure. They would have to consistently be produced, and somehow they would have to be able to accurately duplicate themselves once they were produced, like DNA or RNA. Well, there was a book written by Dr. Dean Kenyon and Gary Steinman. Dean Kenyon was the more famous of the two. They authored this book called Chemical Predestination in 1969. This is just before the discipline of molecular biology began. Molecular biology began because we found some enzymes that we could cut and paste DNA together. Um, before we could do that, there really was no study of what we would call molecular biology. It was biochemistry, but not molecular biology. So he wrote this before. We understood RNA and DNA as well as we do now. And this book, Chemical Predestination, was accepted for many years as an explanation for how chemical evolution could proceed in the prebiotic world. 
He basically, to give it a real simple explanation, he basically said amino acids would just join up with each other and randomly you'd have all these different amino acid chains and some of them would be a protein that could, that could do some chemical reaction that was necessary for life. All right? The thing is, they didn't understand how proteins were made then. And when we did come to understand how proteins were made, Dean Kenyon abandoned the whole amino acid linking together proposal. And yet that, chemical, that, that book was used in universities for years and years, long after he had disavowed chemical predestination altogether. So we still ask the question, because chemical predestination, the amino acid theory, was, was destroyed by research. So we're still asking the question, what came before DNA? It seems like something must have come before DNA. Well, it was RNA. And so there was this proposal of the RNA world. The world that was before DNA ever uh, evolved. The RNA world hypothesis proposes that the RNA molecule was the first biomolecule. And the re there was a good reason for it. I mean, it, logically speaking, RNA is sort of like DNA, so it has parts of it that can be replicated. It could replicate itself, add to itself, as well as it could do some very, very simple chemical reactions, which is what proteins do. So it was like, wow, we've got this molecule that can do both. It can do chemical reactions and it can replicate itself. The magic molecule. It was the first molecule and eventually it evolved and split into DNA, which is just about replicating itself, and proteins, which are just about doing all the chemical reactions. <clears throat> An RNA molecule was, is described that, that does these things. It's called a ribozyme. It's raw RNA and sort of like an enzyme together. Here's a second edition of a very uh, famous book, The RNA World. <clears throat> it's per early proponents, Francis Crick. You heard about him. A couple others maybe you've heard of, Leslie Orgel, Carl Weiss, and a very um, major researcher in the field trying to do experiments to show that RNA could replicate itself was David Bartel. Like I said, when I was in graduate school, I was working on RNA. And there was such a thing as the RNA Society. But when the RNA World proposal came out, suddenly being an RNA biochemist was like, wow, you know, this is, this is really cool. We've got the answer. We've got the magic molecule. And so they called then the, for the first annual meeting of the RNA Society. It had been around for quite a while, but they called for the first meeting. It was at Madison, Wisconsin, University of Wisconsin. And Providence, uh, I went. I was there. And I'll tell you, man, that, you know, scientific conferences... Talk about a snoozer. I mean, they are just, oh, they are just terrible. But uh, this conference was a buzz. I mean, everybody is excited. About half the papers that were being presented were all about the RNA world, you know, this molecule and what it could do, because it was just early, early on in the experimentation. Dave Bartell must have presented 10 different papers at that thing. What, what, would you, what, do you, what is an RNA molecule? What would it have to do to be able to replicate itself and do all the things that they're giving it credit to do? Well, this is the littlest, I shouldn't say littlest, this is one of the littlest uh, RNA molecules. It's called tRNA. It's used by five other giant RNA molecules, 80 proteins, all put together in a machine called a ribosome, and together they all make proteins. 
this particular RNA molecule. The little sticks are bonds between atoms, okay? It's made of 75 nucleotides. A nucleotide has a bunch of atoms. 1,500 atoms, not counting hydrogen, is what that thing is made of. And all of, every one of those atoms have to be in exactly the right place, bound perfectly to its neighbor and so forth. Every one of them has to be perfect. Well, this is a picture of the ribozyme that they were working with that they felt like maybe this is similar to that original RNA molecule that could add to itself, replicate itself. And what other chemical reactions did they propose that it could do? I have no clue. But at least it could make itself, they felt. It's 165 nucleotides long. And they were, it took all kinds of engineering to get it to, to be that size so that they could work with it. They're using extremely carefully controlled temperature, purified chemicals, timed reactions going on. I mean, the control to do work with RNA is, is amazing, just to get it not to fall apart because it's so uh, sensitive. They got this thing with all the work involved to add 10 bases to itself, 10 nucleotides to itself. But then after that, it started just adding stuff all over the place to itself. In other words, it didn't just continue the chain. So this giant molecule that they engineered in the lab, frankly, could only add 10 more nucleotides to itself, and then it just became a random piece of junk. It was useless. David Bartell was doing all this research. He was all excited at the 1996 uh, conference, but it only took five years and with all his experimentation, he realized that um, I don't think this whole RNA world thing is going to uh, pan out. This is something that he said. Let me go back. This is uh, from Science, the, one of the top-notch uh, journals, certainly not a creation journal. The title of the paper is RNA Catalyzed RNA Polymerization. He's just talking about RNA making more RNA. How could general polymerase activities, an RNA make more of itself, have arisen on early Earth? It would have had to have arisen in a single step from prebiotically synthesized RNA without the benefit of Darwinian evolution. So you've got to have this, like, 165 nucleotide, that molecule I showed you, just happen. It's, it's absolutely ridiculous. I mean, that, just, that's, that is beyond belief. It truly is beyond belief. He said, our shortest construct retaining activity was 165 nucleotides long. 165 nucleotides long. However, current understanding of prebiotic chemistry, in other words, what, the, what stuff was in the goo in the primordial earth, our understanding of prebiotic chemistry argues against the emergence of meaningful amounts of RNA molecules even a tenth this long. This difficulty is anticipated by those who propose that life and Darwinian evolution began before RNA. Some speculate that this pre-RNA world life was based on an RNA-like polymer yet to be identified. So basically, he's got everybody right back to square one. It's not RNA. It's some kind of pre-RNA that maybe gave rise to RNA, that gave rise to DNA, that gave rise to a cell. You see where we're at. Now, the thing is, when they first found that ribozyme and they're all excited, so excited that we had a big conference about it, we're starting all this research. I mean, it looked really promising. In fact, it was so promising that it seemed like RNA is the magic pill. Sort of like I can look at this picture here and I can say, look, cows can fly and men can walk on water. I've got proof. There's a picture of it. 
You guys, this is the kind of thing that happens all the time within science. A discovery gets made, and we're looking at something very, very, very specific. And just a little snapshot of it, and it makes sense. Don't think that these things that they propose don't make sense or aren't logical. When you, you know, look at it like this. But you just, you don't have to let very much time pass. Or you don't have to back up very far. And you find out that it's, it's ridiculous. It, it, there's no way that cows fly or men walk on water. Well, no, wait a minute. I know one that walked on water and another that tried for a few steps, right? Those we all understand were miracles. The laws that God put into motion there on day one, two, and so forth were you know, suspended for a moment. This happens all the time. Well, now you might think, you know, we were looking David Bartell back in 2001. Uh, uh, surely more research has been done, right? Maybe we've got some new RNA constructs that are working. Well, 2013, Charles Carter was working on uh, some of the RNA world uh, hypotheses still. He's from the University of North Carolina School of Medicine. And uh, he basically did more experiments to show that we're still no further off. Full, oh, we've got no more to uh, present the RNA world than, than we did back in 2001. And yet you will hear it. From now on, now when you hear uh, evolutionary explanations, you'll hear that thing. Oh, there's the RNA world. You need to realize now that that is completely rejected by the scientific community that knows anything about RNA and so forth. All right. He says that the RNA world, this is an evolutionist, Dr. Carter. The RNA world hypothesis is extremely unlikely. I'll drop down. The study leaves open the question of exactly how these primitive systems manage to replicate themselves. Something neither the RNA world hypothesis nor another one that had, that had come up, the peptide RNA world theory, can yet explain. So we've got nothing to explain where um, uh, even RNA could come from. But belief in the spontaneous generation of living organisms is absolutely, definitely alive and well. It's everywhere. I uh, very seldom look at the USA Today, but I was in an airport, and so there was one, so I grabbed it. And lo and behold, on the front page, December 11th, 2013, so I know it's been a few years, but there on the front page, Martian swimming hole holds hope. Hope. Hope for what? Hope that maybe we've got an explanation of where life came from. They were, uh, it was when the Mars probe was roaming around collecting samples. And in some of the samples, they were finding some of those building block molecules. So it says a rock sample analyzed in the rover's laboratory showed a wide variety of chemicals needed for life. Carbon, hydrogen, oxygen, and others. Quote, if you give it an environment, life is going to spontaneously develop. So why not on Mars? says astrobiologist Clark Johnson of the University of Wisconsin-Madison. This guy is a professor at the University of Wisconsin, and he just makes a statement like this for the front page of USA Today. If you give it an environment, life is going to spontaneously develop. Based on what, I ask? Based on what? Jurassic Park? You know, what was, uh, what was the guy's name? Oh, uh, life will find a way. That's really scientific. But this is what's accepted. And the guys in the media go up and ask the professors. Uh, that is, uh, you know, it's not true. It's, uh, it's not just going to find a way. So, 
Evolution is void of any explanation. Totally void of any explanation. Except Francis Crick's idea that life come, came from outer space, which just pushes the problem you know, further out on some other planet. We won't talk about that. So we've got explanations for the origin of life. Evolution, how about intelligent design? It's interesting. Intelligent design is plain to see. Every child in this room can see it. And maybe not that little, that little one that just walked in but, or got carried in. That's, that's the key right there. It's plain to see. And from the words of the evolutionists themselves, you can see how plain it is to see. Richard Dawkins, you're familiar with him. He's the new high priest of evolution in our society right now. Biology is the study of complicated things that give the appearance of having been designed for a purpose. That's in his book, The Blind Watchmaker. Francis Crick, we've touched on him several times already. Quote, biologists must constantly keep in mind that what they see was not designed, but rather evolved. Why does he have to say something like that? Because when we look at these things, it is plain to see. Everything in our experience demonstrates that we can't come up with a chair. We can't come up with a piano. We can't come up with a computer without a design, without an intelligence producing it. Wasn't it amazing then that other statement said something about, well, it, it's completely against all human experience. That's right. All of our experience, which includes all our scientific investigation, show what? The only way you get complex structure is from information, from design. Well, biologists, keep in mind that what you see was not designed, but rather it evolved. So you can see that there are underpinning their, their thought process. They see design, but then they reject it. Intelligent design theory's main premise is this. They're looking at the information in cellular systems. It's carried by the DNA. It's expressed in the precise functions of interdependent molecules where the RNA and the DNA and the proteins and all those things have to work together to produce each other. <laughs> and finally, directing the coordinated processes of the cell such that it lives Amazing, complex, working together cannot have arisen by random processes. That's simply what they're saying. And it's obvious to everybody until you convince yourself otherwise or insist that it can't be that. All information systems are a product of intelligence and undirected corruption or mutation, corruption in a computer, mutation in DNA of information results in the loss of that information. If I get a virus in my computer and out pops Windows 10, I'm using Windows 7, out pops Windows 10, I will not believe, no matter how much you try to convince me, that it was because, oh, that computer program corrupted, and then voila, I get a more complicated program. I know that somebody went in there and tinkered with it, fixed my problem. Well, that was really nice, you know. The same is true for DNA. The information in there is incredibly complex, and the idea that mutating it would somehow then produce more complex information is simply unobserved, and we know better. That's all intelligent design is proposing. Remember, matter, energy, and information. More and more research being done, especially in the fields of genetics and molecular biology, is confirming the extreme complexity of information within each cell. The more we do research, the more... Uh, 
scientists are literally, even though they're evolutionists still, are abandoning straight out materialistic evolution. They are saying we've got to find something else because Darwinism can't explain life. It can't even explain the, the, the changes in living things. Evolutionary theory cannot account for the origin of the information. Neo-Darwinian evolution only applies to existing information. This woeful inadequacy is resulting in a large number of scientists who are questioning Darwinism, despite what you hear in the media. I mean, what do you hear on the, on the Discovery Channel and these different science shows? Oh, the only people that question Darwinism are goofy. I mean, they, they don't know anything. Well, that is far, far from the truth. Here's a statement, and, if, and I, I, I recommend you go look at it, because I can't show you the whole thing. Descentfromdarwin.org. That's sort of interesting, a little play on words. Not D-E-S-C-E-N-T, but descent. You know, I, I'm refuting it. Descentfromdarwin.org. There's a statement. It's a really, really simple website. There's a statement. We are skeptical of claims for the ability of random mutation and natural selection to account for the complexity of life. Careful examination of the evidence for Darwinian theory should be encouraged. That's all they're saying. They're not saying creation. They're not even saying intelligent design. They're just saying, you know, we need to sort of reevaluate Darwinism here because it's not working. And then you sign it if you've got a higher degree. I'm just going to show you page one and page two. There's the statement. These are people that signed it. I've, my signature's on page 13 of what are, um, I don't know how many now because I, I need to keep going updating. But the last I checked, there was 21 pages of print like this. These people, um, a PhD in chemistry from Harvard, director of the Center of Computational Quantum Chemistry from the University of Georgia, uh, assistant professor of environmental science from Duke. Okay, I mean, these are not people at Emmaus Bible College. Not to say that Emmaus doesn't have brilliant professors and any young person that's thinking of going to college, I recommend you at least look into it, please. Anyway, these are, you know, the intelligentsia. These are the wise and brilliant minds of the world. Evolutionists all, at least at one point. And they are signing this statement. Here's page two. We could just go on and on and on and on and on. So the idea that nobody that uh, knows anything is questioning evolution is just flat out wrong. You, you can't believe everything you hear uh, on the television. Did you know that? But we are still left with the question, what or who is the source of the information we find in living organisms? Because like I said, intelligent design theory doesn't take that next step. They leave that for the philosophers and the uh, creationists. Well, creation has an explanation for the origin of life does address the question, who is the designer? Biblical creation says the source of biological information is the source of all revelation. The creator in Genesis 1.1, he reveals himself. He says, in the beginning, God created. Isn't it interesting that the first thing God ever says about himself in the Bible is that what? He's the creator. I guess he thinks that's important for us all to get right. No wonder then that the devil is trying to chop at that. I mean, if we can throw out Genesis 1.1, what's the rest of the Bible about? Well, I don't know. It doesn't matter. The first sentence in the Bible is wrong. This is a big issue, isn't it? When you think about it. And then John 1.1, in the beginning, sort of just 
almost like rewording Genesis 1.1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. What is the Word, the Logos, the reason, the intelligence? There it is. That's what it took for the creation of heaven and earth. Is it logical that the Creator would choose to reveal Himself to man, about whom the Bible says God created man in His own image? He created an image bearer. He created a creature that in many, many ways is like Him. Isn't it logical that He would reveal Himself then to this creation? This creation? Is it logical that the Creator would reveal Himself in an objective form so that we're not just sitting on the mountaintop uh, hoping that we have uh, spiritual thoughts? You know, how crazy, you know, how, you know people that just think that God's talking to them under every bush and, and how crazy it gets. I'm not saying that God doesn't speak to our hearts. Believe me, my, a big, big event in my life was God speaking to me through a bird, by the way. <laughs> not the bird chirping, but just seeing one. And I just, just, there's no way that these things happen by chance. So God does reveal himself in creation. But objectively, he reveals himself in a written form that could be carefully preserved through history using this mind, this intellect that he's given us. Note what the Bible says about itself. These are things that I'm sure that you're familiar with, but we'll just touch on them really quickly. All Scripture is inspired by God, this revealed Word, and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness. You know, I would submit that buried in that verse is the reason why those that might even believe in intelligent design would resist the creator of this book. Why? Because it doesn't just talk about creation. There's a lot of reproof and correction in there. And I don't like that. So to forget about that part, I'm just going to forget about that God altogether. And rationalize and justify rejecting it by saying, oh, it's full of errors. That's not God's word. And completely contradicting what it says right there. All scripture is inspired by God. As well as in First Peter. Know this, first of all, no prophecy of Scripture is a matter of one's, one's own interpretation. In other words, it's not a book of man. For no prophecy was ever made by an act of human will. But men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. Yet many people ask, if the Bible is the Word of God, how, how can it be so full of errors? I mean, there, there can be some people genuinely you know, concerned about that. Their, their understanding, they've heard. Not that they've ever studied it themselves. So you'll virtually always find that to be the case. But uh, I've heard that it's, it's full of errors. So how could that be the word of God? I think we should be prepared to, to you know, openly and without argument or arguing, you know, speak with a person that has a genuine question like that. Because generally what are called errors by the critics of the Bible simply are not. These are reasons why hopefully we, we uh, somebody may say something that they heard was an error and we may not know what they're talking about. Well, then the next thing you should do when you've got a little bit of free time is go study that out for yourself so that you can answer it next time. Generally, what are called errors by critics of the Bible, they're simply not errors. They're distortions or misunderstandings. And uh, oftentimes it's a, it's a willful misrepresentation of what the Word of God says very often, but, but by no means not all the time. Sometimes people have an honest understanding that, well, this book is just, just not true. On the other hand, though, believers ask, well, with so many fulfilled prophecies, some yet to come to pass, how can the Bible not be the Word of God? I mean, it's supernatural. It's telling the future. 
And that is something well, we can also share. Um, if we can give a few solutions to some of their questions, but also say, and, and, and yet, you know, the Bible presents itself in such a way that it says things that there's no way that man could have known these things. So it has internal evidence that it, it's special. It's God's word. This is something that I find very encouraging. Great minds throughout human history, including large number of scientists who founded most of the scientific disciplines we study today, have carefully examined the scriptures and found them to be amazingly accurate and self-consistent and most importantly, life-transforming. You know, let's not present these things, these apologetics, as though, well, man, you've got to get this right or you're, you know... Um, what truly matters the most is what the Word of God says about the Lord Jesus Christ, who He is and what He did for you and your need for Him. And it truly is life-transforming. But, especially to be salt and light in our world, many, many times these discussions do go into the arena of apologetics. And I hope that um, you have a desire to at least be equipped to a certain extent on how to address that. Careful examination of the text often reveals remarkable correlation with modern scientific discovery. The more we discover, the more we find, wow, that was in the Bible long before uh, we ever, quote unquote, discovered it. That's why I love the word research. Research. It's not that we're the first ones to discover it. God knew it a long time ago, and a lot of it he told us about. And we're refinding these things. I'm just going to list these things. I, I'd love to touch on them, but I'm not going to go into them. But these are facts. In the Bible, things like creation ex nihilo are referred to. In other words, universe popping into, into existence out of nothing. The composition of living things is made of the dirt. It's true. The created kinds, and they don't equal species, are supported by um, the clades, as we call them. Speciation of the kinds in Genesis 1.22. The distinctiveness of man. We are created in God's image. We're not like an animal in many ways. Uh, the earth is round, and we are in an expanding universe. Those things are mentioned in Job and Jeremiah. The earth is suspended in empty space, Job 26.7. Cavemen are referred to in the book of Job. The movement of distant stars, something that we discovered about stars in Orion and the Pleiades when uh, we put the Hubble telescope out there just a decade ago were mentioned, details were mentioned in Job about what we discovered. Dinosaurs are mentioned in the Bible. Ocean currents are mentioned in the Bible. And a host of other things. <clears throat> so, explanations for the origin of life. Evolution, creation, intelligent design, all of them propose where life came from, how it came about. What explanation do you think is reasonable? You don't have to be a PhD. In fact, that generally is going to be an obstacle. <laughs> Put your common sense to use. What explanation do you think is reasonable for where the origin of life originated? How it came to be? One of my, certainly not the only one, but one of my life verses is in Proverbs chapter 3. It says, Trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not lean on your own understanding. And might I also add, or somebody else's understanding in all your ways acknowledge him and he will make your path straight don't be wise in your own eyes 
fear the Lord and turn away from evil. We have a marvelous creator. When we study uh, what it takes for uh, the simplest living cell, we just are in awe of the intelligence and wisdom, the beauty, the, the creation, the, the creative power of our creator. And as we mentioned this morning, with all that, we can have a personal relationship with Him. And uh, the more we know about Him, the more I trust we can enjoy creation as well. And if any of you young people are thinking about studying creation, I highly recommend that you do it. And like Kepler, think of it as a means by which you think God's thoughts after Him. It will put you in the best position to succeed in figuring out This amazing creation around us. Let's let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for the revelation of your word in Jesus, first and foremost. The revelation of your word in the written form that we treasure, that we struggle with, we admit. Because there are things in there about correction and reproof that are difficult to handle. But Lord, we thank you that your desire for us is good. Your desire for us is success. Your desire for us is righteousness and eternal life. And we thank you for your revelation in creation. Whether we look with the most powerful telescope or the most powerful microscope, we see your hand. We see your glory, your revelation to us. And so I pray that you would encourage us this evening with some of these thoughts. Cause us to marvel, to awe, to worship. And to draw closer to you, given the privilege that we have of not only being called your creatures, but your sons and daughters. Thank you, Father. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.